take a moment to consider all the factors that impact your health. What comes to mind? Your diet? Perhaps your lifestyle, like whether you exercise, drink, or smoke? Maybe you thought about your family history of diseases like cancer or diabetes. But health and well-being go beyond that. The field of public health is about thinking broader, thinking beyond the individual, about how our built environment affects us, how laws and policies impact us, and how the social forces influence our behavior and well-being. Each week, this podcast will discuss one topic from the wonderful world of public health to reveal these ubiquitous hidden forces and artifacts. One episode at a time, we will show how public health is all around us. Welcome to Everything is Public Health. Everything is Public Health. Welcome back to Everything is Public Health. I'm MJ. And I'm Cass. So before we start an announcement, we are skipping an episode for Thanksgiving. So please go back home or I don't know, technically still COVID. So maybe that's not a good suggestion. I don't know. I don't know what to suggest, but please celebrate Thanksgiving. However, you would like to celebrate Thanksgiving. We'll be taking an episode off. Be safe, though. Yes, be safe. Practice appropriate measures, whatever those might be for whatever uh, activities you're engaging in so that everyone can stay healthy. Yes. And if you haven't uh, already, please get vaccinated because that has been proven to be a real relatively easy way to protect yourself against COVID. Absolutely. I can say that, right? Yeah. Yeah, I can say that. It's of course. My, it's my show. I it's don't our, care. Yeah, you can say whatever you want, <laughs> as long as it's accurate. And getting vaccinated is the best thing that you can do. I was really excited. I know that this is going to come out probably after this announcement was already made. But just a side note, I'm, I'm excited that it looks like we're moving forward with vaccines for five to 11 year olds, because I have a lot of friends with school aged kids who are at increased risk. So fantastic. Wonderful. But yes, we'll be skipping an episode for Thanksgiving, but we'll still have bonus episodes the Monday surrounding it. So to keep you engaged. Yeah, we don't want you to miss us too much. Yes, that is correct. So please enjoy Thanksgiving off. We'll be also taking Thanksgiving off. So happy Thanksgiving, everyone. So, Cass. Yes, MJ. I feel like throughout this podcast, you have learned a few things that you find surprising about me. I think the most, the one that sticks in my memory was your reaction to me not having a phone case. That one still (laughs) really really bothers me because you just <laughs> never know when you're going to drop it. My phone is sturdy. I, I believe in the manufacturer's ability to protect my phone. Um, wow. <laughs> I did not peg you as someone who would be so naive. I wear a helmet when I bike. <laughs> That's good. We've talked before about how, you know, equating cell phone cases to cell phones with helmets to brains has right. been an effective messaging strategy for kids. So yes. I'm glad you wear a helmet. Yes, I do wear helmets because why not? Well, and you don't drive, so <laughs> you got to be safe when you ride a bike. I guess that's another thing you find surprising about me. I don't drive. Can you think of another one? I think those two are the ones that... You don't drink coffee, which I find weird also. No, I don't drink coffee and I rarely drink tea. I have such a I just wake up. unhealthy and very strong caffeine addiction. I cannot imagine not <laughs> drinking coffee. Well, here's another one. Are you ready? Yeah. Not a fan of beer. That's fair. <laughs> okay. Beer is a very acquired taste. Right. Not a fan of any alcohol except for hard cider because it tastes like juice. Have you had hard seltzers? Uh, does it taste like juice? It tastes like club soda with a fruit flavoring. Oh, okay. Then maybe I will, but like uh, never been a fan of alcohol. I do buy it and use it for cooking. So I do appreciate so good in cooking. Yes, of course. Uh, You know, beef stew, red wine or beer and bread batter. Sometimes that helps. But yeah, I love alcohol as a concept, but I use it mostly for cooking. I'm not a fan of the taste unless it tastes like juice, uh, which is why I love cider. (laughs) um, That's fine. But um, yeah, 
I, I thought that would that would be be more shocking to you, but um, you're right. Beer is alcohol is an acquired taste, I guess. Yeah, no, I nothing can top the fact that you don't have a cell phone case. <laughs> that's you don't even have a screen protector. That is no so <laughs> wrong. Well, phones are so expensive. They're so expensive. You have to protect. Them. I mean, I've I had this for like they're fragile little babies, almost like three years, and I, nothing's happened to it. That's impressive, both <laughs> in that it doesn't have any damage, uh-huh. and that it still works well. Because you know, these days, as we've talked about, yeah, they design things to have like a two-year life, and then you have to get a new one. Yeah, which is uh, we'll do a, a separate episode on it. But anyway, so. If you can't tell already, today's episode, because this is episode 21, it is an episode about alcohol. It is extremely fitting because 21 is the drinking age in the United States. And also the 21st Amendment. It is the only amendment to repeal another amendment in the history of the United States. It repealed the 18th Amendment, which is also fitting because in a lot of other countries, 18 is a drinking age there. We're one of the few countries with 21 as a drinking age. The 18th Amendment is the Prohibition Amendment, which essentially is no alcohol, ban alcohol, don't distribute, don't produce. Actually, I don't think they have a specific clause about consumption, but... No, which is is so, so interesting. Just as a quick side note. Yeah. So all of the laws now that we have in place, not amendments, obviously, but laws, state and federal laws that we have regulating drug use. Mm -hmm. They focus on distribution and manufacture, but they also focus on possession and use. And consumption, yes. And consumption, right? Use. But the 18th Amendment, it only prohibited the production and distribution, like the manufacturing side. You didn't get in trouble if you actually drank it. So they had a very, very hard time demonizing alcohol users the way that the United States has been so effective at demonizing drug users. I just think it's such an interesting parallel and contrast. Yeah, and we'll definitely get back to this. But before we jump into all our comments, all our witty and bantery comments about the 18th and 21st Amendments, a little brief history. First of all, I'm not a historian, so if I overgeneralize things, uh, I apologize. But the 18th Amendment was passed in 1919. And the 21st Amendment was passed in 1933. So we experienced a period of, what is that, 14 years of quote-unquote prohibition, where distribution, manufacturing, but yeah, so basically the manufacturing side, no alcohol, no quote-unquote intoxicating liquor. This blows my mind to this day, like how this happened. (laughs) We, the United States of America, a country who is notoriously bad at deciding anything (laughs) together... (laughs) has managed to band together enough political force to say, let's ban one of the most historic and widespread liquid <laughs> as, an, as a country. I don't understand how it happened because I don't think anyone today has the same level of political force that can get this to go. So how did it happen? How did it happen? To be fair, I, I read it and I still don't understand how it happened because my mind just can't, I just can't wrap my mind around it. But here's here's relatively what happened. So it started out noble enough. It was a relatively liberal movement or a progressive movement that accompanied other progressive movement like reducing poverty. So it was at first very targeted towards like, hey, alcohol is causes bad behavior. Alcohol is afflicting the people at the lower social economic level. And it, it started out really progressive. It's like, hey, this is not a good thing. We should really like look into this as an issue. And it also started out like a feminist movement as well. So it started out really well because a lot of women at that time were getting abused by their alcoholic husband. So a lot of women were also part of this, like alcohol is like, it just causes a lot of problems. So it started out really good, but it evolved 
with a more religious overtone. And the religious overtone got more and more overt as this prohibition and temperance movement evolved. So it started to become not just drinking alcohol causes bad behavior. It started to become alcohol is a source of society's moral failings. Ah, yes. So by the time that the 18th Amendment was about to get ratified, by the time the 1919 rolled around, it was a full-blown moral panic. And we should probably define what a moral panic is. How would you define a moral panic? So a moral panic is when a widespread, overwhelming fear of something, it could be a person, it could be a behavior or whatever, that is seen as threatening toward the well-being of broader group of people, broader society. Right. So a more recent moral panic that we might be thinking about is, uh, well, it's not recent, I guess, but something that uh, maybe you may remember. But uh, uh, do you know that we went through a satanic panic at one point? A satanic panic? Were you were you there for that, or was that even before I don't you? Know when when I don't I don't recall a satanic. I mean, I remember as a kid there was this a lot of kids who were like, yay, anarchy, yay, Satan, goth, kind of all of that stuff. But I may have been too young to to have had it register as a satanic panic. Right. When was it? So uh, it was like the, you know, 70s, 80s, 60s, 70s, oh, 80s. I'm, but I'm not that old. I'm, I'm so sorry. <laughs> oh I'm gosh. so sorry. I just thought you might remember. Um, no. Um, a more recent moral panic might be... Um, let me let me try to think of a good example. QAnon. 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 According to theconversation.com, uh-huh. <laughs> the QAnon conspiracy is the latest in a long line of moral panics. Yeah, I, I would agree. QAnon being a recent one, immigrants being the one that plagued us 10 years back. Absolutely. Other modern examples include the war on drugs, the war on terror, the war on Christmas. A more recent one is this moral panic of critical race theory being taught in schools. Essentially, that's what a moral panic is, where a group of people or a, a large portion of the nation thought that there was a singular cause for everyone's moral failing, and they're fearing that it, this singular cause will rip society apart. So that's kind of what defines a moral panic. So it started out pretty progressive, started out pretty noble, but as it got more and more religious in its overtones and undertones, it developed into a moral panic. And so this surprised me. Like Before the 18th Amendment was passed, there were already widespread local and state prohibition statutes in place. So it kind of relates to the preemption stuff that we did a few episodes back. So they, there was a lot of local and state level in place. So the temperance people, the prohibition people will say, well, let's just pass a federal law so that every state has to do it. Every locality has to do it. So that's kind of what their political strategy was. And that's a pretty common strategy where if you get something in place in enough states, then the federal government sort of has to do something to set the same ground floor preemption, excuse me. Yeah. What surprised me was that it was widespread. Like it was not like a fringe movement at all. Like there was a lot of places who pushed for prohibition on the local and state level already. So they passed the 18th Amendment with relatively large margins by today's standards, I guess, uh, or people supporting it. And when it first went into effect, it was received, initially it was received well because we see a relatively sharp drop off of public drinking, a sharp drop off of liver disease and, you know, drunk violence, petty crime incidents, which sort of birthed this quote by Morris Shepard, a U.S. senator from Texas. Would you like to read it? 
Yes, it's one of my most favorite quotes. There's as much chance of repealing the 18th Amendment as there is for a hummingbird to fly to the planet Mars with the Washington Monument tied to its tail. This one aged like milk because we know the 21st Amendment happened. So so why is this one of your favorite quotes? This is one of my favorite quotes because a lot of times people look at the opposition or they look at the hurdles that have to be overcome and they feel like, oh, this is just impossible. We can't come to a solution. We can't make any progress. So we should just stop what we're doing and we should give up. But this quote and sort of the subsequent repeal of the 18th Amendment shows that even in what seems like, you know, you're in the midst of an impossible situation to overcome, you can still bring enough people together to make progress. Not that I'm saying we should repeal other amendments or anything like that. I'm just saying, like, I like this quote because very few things are actually impossible if you can collaborate and coordinate with enough folks. Yeah. And we're going to see how that happens in a little bit. So as I mentioned, there was an immediate favorable effect of prohibition, as you as you expect, right? Because distribution and manufacture of alcohol got banned overnight. So people naturally have a hard time getting their hands on alcohol. But this was very short lived because, as we know, you can't just cut off a supply and expect things to go away. Right. What didn't get addressed was the demand. Sure, they put an amendment in place that criminalized the supply side. It didn't criminalize use, which we talked about, but they also did nothing to address the demand in any way. There were, you know, limited treatment programs. There were sort of limited ways to address the need, quote unquote, that people had for alcohol. Uh, And so people still wanted it. And that you got speakeasies and and moonshiners out in West Virginia and, and all sorts of supply side changes in order to meet the demand. And interestingly, prohibition, I think, was our very first law enforcement sort of failed war on drugs attempt. Yes. Uh, which will tie into the stuff that we're going to bring up later. Yeah. So the moonshiners, they were worried about law enforcement showing up. So they started arming themselves. So then police needed to have guns to because the moonshiners had guns. And it sort of became this cycle, like an arms race, like we see in the other failed war on drugs. Right. And you mentioned the moonshiners, right? So because they're, they cut off the supply while demand was still a thing, people started making their own alcohol to devastating effect yeah. because, you know, it's not easy to make alcohol. So you could very easily get like contaminated alcohol. People would go blind. You can get this thing called methanol. Methanol, which is the cousin of ethanol, which is, you know, not safe for consumption at all. So nope. people started making their own alcohol to devastating effect. And this is the most hilarious point that I found is that the 18th Amendment says intoxicating liquor. And at that time, when people read the term intoxicating liquor, they thought distilled liquor, which is gin. Gin, tequila, whiskey, rum, vodka. So they thought those things. But intoxicating liquor, what people didn't know is that it was interpreted to include beer and wine. So people (laughs) was not expecting beer and wine to be banned by the 18th Amendment. So that was... I find it a little hilarious. That was not the point I thought you were going to make, which is why I said mobs earlier. I thought you were going to talk about sort of how the mobsters took over moonshining and like yes. there was this huge boom in organized crime in response to prohibition. That was actually the next hilarious point that uh, I wanted to point out because again, as you do, you're very good at anticipating where I'm going. So perfect segue. So petty crime went down because the petty crime that you associated with like drunkenness and alcohol consumption, that went down. 
but organized crime got the biggest boom in American history under prohibition because as the supply side needs to keep up with the demand, you know, you need to be organized on how you hide your operation and how you distribute your, you know, illegal distillation, right? So organized crimes became a huge thing under prohibition. This is where Al Capone got its start. This is where the mob really stepped in and sort of became the system that supplied things. So anyway, it had devastating effect. It was impossible to enforce, which was one of the reasons why it got repealed, I think, because they realized it was impossible to enforce. Organized crime is becoming an issue, and they realized it just simply did not work because you can't just cut off supply and expect demand to follow. So after 14 years, they passed the 21st Amendment. It's very unique in many ways. It was the only amendment ratified by state ratifying convention. So it sort of bypassed the federal levels. It just like states got together and say, hey, we're going to pass this amendment. And it did. And it was the only amendment to do so because the anti-prohibition forces just grew and grew and grew as organized crime, as other issues with prohibition sort of came to the surface. So what is the lesson to glean from this? From a public health perspective, I think my biggest comment is if you want to develop a solution to anything, be that like alcohol or like motor vehicle accidents or like gun violence, your solution needs to be multifaceted. Absolutely. You can't just be like, okay, we're going to cut off the supply. And uh, you brought up war on drugs earlier, right? Still, to this day, our current drug policy is to simply make it illegal and enforce. Other countries have taken a different approach to drug use, recreational drug use, largely removing the criminal prohibitions and instead offering treatment, medication-assisted treatment, different ways that people can receive treatment and support for stopping the drug use, but not ending up in jail. It'll be really interesting to see what happens in Oregon over the next few years because they decriminalized all of their drugs, I think all of their drugs. Oh, that was them, that's right. Oregon, yeah, yeah, via ballot initiative. And so it'll be very interesting to see what happens in Oregon. Um, Because when you you decriminalize something, you take the stigma away. And I want to say decriminalizing is not the same thing as legalizing, right? So it's still not okay to do, but if you do it, you're not going to get thrown in jail. You'll receive treatments and other supportive services to try to help address your, if you have a substance use disorder or whatever it is. But it'll be very, very interesting to see what happens in Oregon. We've seen what's been happening at the state level with recreational marijuana legalization, lots of arrests going down, you know, not a ton, perhaps, of the harmful effects that people were expecting would happen. A lot of tax revenue, too. Yeah, definitely. And I really love the point that you brought up. This is not to say that we should legalize drugs, right? This is just decriminalizing drugs, which is a different effort altogether. Right. We need to think about drug use like we do other public health issues. You can't punish people and expect them to change their behavior. It doesn't always work. That doesn't always resonate with everyone. And it can actually make issues worse in many cases, because perhaps you send someone to jail or prison, they receive treatment while they're in jail or prison. When they come out, there's no treatment available for them, and then they relapse. And so we need to have people being able to stay in the communities, keep their jobs, receive treatment, and sort of be contributing members in their community. Yeah, to make sure that the justice system is not just about punishment, but also about rehabilitation and about, you know, reform, right? I think that's what ultimately what a justice system should do. We need to have a whole episode about sort of criminal justice reform. Oh, yes. Because right now, the way our system set up, there is no accountability. No. It's it's punishment with no accountability and it doesn't generally leaves people in a worse place yeah. when they're out than 
when they went in. And they're going right back to the same environment that led them to engage in those behaviors that got them into jail in the first place. So a vicious cycle to expect that people are going to be able to do well without any kind of supports and services. Yeah. Anyway, we'll do an episode on that. We definitely will. But I think that's the biggest lesson I want our listeners to glean from this is that the public health approach should be applied to this. Like we can't just cut off a supply and expect it to work like we did it with alcohol. Like what makes us think that doing it with drugs or other things is going to work as well. It needs to be a multifaceted approach. But I do want to end with this message, which is despite prohibition not working, despite uh, it was overall like just just a really like a really bonkers thing to do, I guess. Uh, This is not to say that, you know, alcohol is great because alcohol is to this day responsible for a lot of deaths in terms of uh, drunk driving incidents and alcohol leads to for some people uh, violent behaviors liver disease liver disease yeah just medical effects of alcohol so every year alcohol is set to be responsible for over ninety-five thousand deaths in america so you know but alcohol is legal but marijuana is banned So, and I will use this as a preview for when we do our history of marijuana episode to illustrate why marijuana, despite being a, it's not totally harmless, despite being a relatively harmless substance compared to other drugs like alcohol, like cocaine and heroin, why is marijuana so deeply criminalized? One interesting point. So marijuana is still illegal at the federal level, even though some states have legalized it. So For example, if you live in a state like Maryland, where we have medical marijuana, Mm -hmm. so if you have a medical marijuana card, you are still prohibited from owning a gun because it's a violation of federal law. Mm -hmm. So we've got these really interesting um, contrasts between state and federal law. And I know this isn't an episode about guns, but just wanted to flag um, as a teaser for when we talk about marijuana in an episode that there are so many things that this can impact. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Drink responsibly. (laughs) No, it's, it's good. Yeah. Drink responsibly. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of Everything is Public Health. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe and spread the word so more and more people can learn about the wonderful, omnipresent essence of public health. New episodes are released every Thursday on Spotify, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Bonus episodes drop on Mondays. Follow us on Twitter at EverythingIsPH or Instagram at EverythingIsPublicHealth. Send us questions or comments to EverythingIsPublicHealth at gmail.com. Also reach out if you think we miss an important perspective or suggest a future episode topic. You can find me on Twitter at Dr. Krufasi. And if you want to see some of my gluten-free baking creations or my really cute dog, Penny, you can follow me on Instagram at CassPhD. Please also give us a rating and a review on wherever you listen to your podcast. It does help us immensely. Don't forget to like, share, and comment as well. If you want to support the podcast directly, we have a Patreon page and the link for that is in the episode description below. And remember, everything is public health. Everything is public health.